I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Parallaxius listeners, on this edition of the program, Norman Solomon, a longtime anti-war and peace activist, joins us to discuss his latest book, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Toll of Its Military Machine. Norman and I will be discussing how U.S. war efforts since Vietnam have been sold and packaged to the American public. As many will recall from the George W. Bush years, there was a time when speaking out against the Iraq War and the war in Afghanistan was considered unpatriotic. How do people get caught up in the rhythm of the war drums? That's the question we'll be addressing throughout the following conversation. We'll also end up discussing Ukraine a little bit, and I think we may have some disagreements there. As I myself support Ukrainian resistance to the invasion and believe that it is the Ukrainians' choice when they will stop fighting. I realize that some of my listeners will disagree with that, others will agree. You know, I'm open to conversation, but Putin's invasion really, really shook me, especially as someone with a Ukrainian background. So, uh, just a note that there is a little bit of debate here about Ukraine in the following conversation. In any case, I think that Norman provides an important perspective on U.S. wars, the U.S. warfare state. And I am concerned that after the war in Ukraine ends, many will be too quick to ignore the U.S.'s track record of military adventurism, and I think that track record has been disastrous. So we really do need to be concerned about U.S. militarism going forward. 
With all that in mind, let's get right to it with Norman Solomon, author of War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Toll of Its Military Machine. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really excited to be speaking with. I was just telling him off the air that I've been familiar with his work since I first became interested in issues related to war, peace, and foreign policy back when the Iraq War broke out. Uh, Norman Solomon, author of War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine, which came out uh, in June of this year. Also, Norman has been writing about war, uh, media bias, and related issues for a number of years now, and he's done some great work. So uh, I want to welcome him to the show. How are you doing? Good, and uh, thanks very much for inviting me. So, Norman, one thing I I wanted to ask you about first before we get into uh, War Made Invisible, which is an especially uh, prescient book, uh, given that you know, we just passed the anniversary of 9-11 and the war on terror that followed it. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, could you maybe talk a little bit about your background? Because I know you've been involved in peace activism uh, from a very early age. How did you get involved in the world of peace activism and uh, anti-war activism? I was born in 1951. So as I came through junior high and into high school, the Vietnam War was escalating. And like most people, I supported it. I thought it was making sense. Of course, the United States should fight communism and defend freedom. But as the war continued, and for me in 1967, 68, I was 15, 16 years old, I began to pay more attention and realized that the official story was not the accurate story. And so since that time, as a journalist, as an activist, as a human being, you might say, I've been very engaged in these issues and uh, worked as a journalist, uh, done a lot of research, as you mentioned, have written books and really tried to make sense of it all. With regards to uh, War Made Invisible, and I like how that sort of uh, references back to one of your previous books, War Made Easy, maybe you could give the gist of what you were trying to uh, you know, express uh, throughout this whole book and, and the sort of thesis that you're going with in it. In War Made Easy, which, as you mentioned, came out, oh, almost 20 years ago, I was dealing with the ways in which the underlying rationales for war were put forward in a way to try to persuade people to be passive and acceptant. And even if they weren't in the wars, they should, according to the messaging, be very present in accepting it and uh, supporting it. So that book dealt with the techniques of media propaganda for war. And since then, there's been a evolution. More and more, the wars are in the process of going into the air, being above it all, fewer troops on the ground. And as a consequence, we've gotten less and less information about what's actually happening. And so that gave rise to the book War Made Invisible, which, as you mentioned, has just come out. 
If you could, could you talk a little bit more about that issue of war sort of becoming invisible to us, especially in the age of uh, drone warfare? I was speaking recently with um, Samuel Moyne, who I'm assuming you're familiar with. Uh, he wrote the book Humane a few years ago, and I saw that you had that uh, chapter in your book uh, in quotes, humane wars. So maybe we could talk a little bit about the way war has changed with this sort of high-tech weaponry. It's changed because fewer and fewer U.S. troops are in jeopardy, uh, less media visibility, more of a abstraction, reliance on technology. And it makes the ongoing war more possible. It makes the normalization of war seem more tolerable politically and in terms of media coverage. And that has enormous effects. That's really an evolution that we've been part of in the last dozen years or so. So so with regards to that, when you say it's made it more bearable, is it because of the, you know, troops, you know, these human lives being uh, sort of spared uh, by the use of drones instead, which we often forget. You know, I, I mean, to us, we're we're not living under those drones, but people in Afghanistan for years were living under drones with names like Hellfire and whatnot. Yeah, these are very different circumstances. It's one thing to sit and read a newspaper or watch a YouTube video or listen to the radio, and another to actually have a drone overhead and know that at any moment it could take out your life. The gap between those two experiences is huge, and it goes to the invisibility of U.S. wars for Americans, even while, of course, it's a 180 for people who are under the missiles, under the threat. And this is it's psychological, it's political, it's logistical, and the consequences are profound because we're supposed to live in a country with the informed consent of the governed. That's supposed to be you know, a precept of democracy. And yet, as a practical matter, we're uninformed about these crucial matters. If you could, I, I was hoping we could dive into the ways in which media coverage have affected war efforts over the years, and the sort of way that we talk about war through the media, you know, I know one thing that you point out in the book is that we often uh, see, you know, headlines about defense spending instead of, you know, calling it military spending. Could you talk about the way language is used to maybe sell us war? Yeah, language is crucial. And, you know, if we've done much study, we're aware of George Orwell warning about the manipulation of language. And yet we're inured to it ourselves. We are so familiar with it, it becomes the water that we swim in. And what water? We are so accustomed to it. And that's an example that I do emphasize in the book early on, that we routinely, even people who are anti-war, call it defense spending. The defense budget is too large. And when they write about it, they it's a lowercase d. It's not about Defense Department per se. Well, that gives away part of the argument right there. Who's against defense? Why would you want to scrimp and save and economize when defense is at stake? Well, we have a budget of $850 billion a year that doesn't even include nuclear 
spending, nuclear weapons expenditures, just for the Pentagon, edging up to $900 billion a year. And I think we could make a very strong case that most of that has nothing to do with defense. It's aerospace industries, it's war profiteering, it's the momentum of war and the warfare state. And as a consequence, we're, we're being scammed. And by we, I mean taxpayers. Martin Luther King Jr. referred to what he called the destructive demonic suction tube of massive military spending. That was 1967. Well, here we are most of the way through 2023. It's a bigger demonic suction tube is just as demonic, and it's, if anything, even more destructive. At the beginning of the book, you start out with three quotes, two by Aldous Huxley and one by the great Catholic thinker Thomas Merton. And uh, I've also been influenced by Merton. Actually, I'm initially from Pittsburgh, and uh, you know I'm familiar with the Thomas Merton Center. I used to go to some events uh, that they put on, and I'm, I'm very influenced by Merton. Uh, could you talk about why you included those quotes? And, and if you want, I can read them off, or uh, you can just talk a little bit about the quotes that you use to open up the book. Yeah, if you have them handy, how about read them off and I'd be glad to talk about them. Okay, so the the first quote was, uh, the propagandist's purpose is to make one set of people forget that certain other sets of people are human. Out of Huxley, 1936. Do you want to tackle that one first? Yes, it's really elemental and it's ironic, of course, and sad that he said that a few years, wrote that a few years before World War II. And it's the objectification of other people. Sometimes it's overt. Sometimes it's obviously racist or nationalistic. But it's often more subtle. It's the omission. It's the failure to acknowledge the humanity of, uh, the wording that might be rather dismissive, like collateral damage, or simply... Why talk about them? Not worth discussing, unlike us, unlike our soldiers, our people, those who lost their lives on 9-11. We focus on their humanity, but by omission, we're encouraged to, as Huxley said, forget that other people are human. And I think it was perhaps Voltaire, I'm not sure, who said um, those who make absurdities uh, possible, make atrocities possible. I'm paraphrasing there. Well, it's sort of an absurdity, really, that other people aren't human, even if they are. But then the atrocities become possible. War, arguably, itself is an atrocity, sometimes much more so than others. So I did include that Huxley quote because I think it it goes to the core of the problem we're facing now, where through so much technology, and so much distancing, psychological, geographical, and uh, technological, were distanced from people who, in our names with our tax dollars, are being terrorized and, and sometimes killed. So that, that second quote uh, was uh, Huxley in 1946. The greatest triumphs of propaganda have been accomplished not by doing something, but by refraining from doing greatest truth, but still greater from a practical point of view, is silence about truth. And uh, I, I think you sort of covered that in your response to the the first quote. But is there anything else you would add there? Because I think I think it's a very astute point Huxley made. You know, uh, when we don't speak up, you know, that becomes a form of complicity. 
Very much. Uh, silence equals death is what AIDS activists uh, said in the 1980s. And in addition to the silence, the omission about the victims of U.S. warfare, there's also the historical omissions, the ways in which, for instance, during the Vietnam War, during the Iraq War, and now even with Russia being the terrible aggressor in Ukraine, certain historical facts are simply omitted. And when they're omitted, then the picture is really different. And when there's a really different picture, then people have a very different way of evaluating the wisdom, the value, the validity of warfare. It's a really routine process that becomes um, automatic. It basically blends into the scenery. It melds into the wallpaper of the media echo chamber, you might say. And the result is we have a distorted view of the world. Um, it becomes a window on the world, in this case, tinted red, white, and blue. Very dangerous, makes these wars much more feasible to begin and continue on a political and media basis. The uh, other quote, and, and we don't even have to get into the quote so much as maybe why you chose to quote Merton, who I, I think we could talk about for ages because he's such a great thinker. But uh, that third quote was, uh, do not think yourself better because you burn up friends and enemies with long range missiles without ever seeing what you have done. And that really does sum up your book. We, I mean, he's talking about war being made invisible, but uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about Merton and the influence he had on you and maybe your outlook. He's somebody who really was a, a contemplative person who was willing to take a clear position against war. He was not exactly speaking to throngs of thousands. He wasn't on the barricades. He was somebody who thought deeply and wrote deeply about the moral core of living amidst a an acceptance and a ratification of an enabling of war, what our moral responsibilities are. And I think that quote from a poem of his really encapsulates the willingness that's all too rare to speak very, very difficult truths, not only inconvenient truths, but potentially in social terms, explosive ones, very difficult for people to hear, to accept. And I think we're, we're very much in that mode now. We have all sorts of ways of dressing things up. We do think ourselves better, as Merton says, because we use high technology or our government does it's appropriately abhorrent that people who pack explosives into a car trunk and slam into a target and kill people, put on a suicide belt, that's properly condemned by our, our society in the United States. And yet, to drop explosives on people from high in the air, courtesy of U.S. taxpayers, is not only accepted, but this is a form of heroism. As a matter of fact, 
when President Biden just went to Vietnam, he honored, went to a site in Vietnam honoring, honoring John McCain. Well, on the one hand, John McCain, he was treated terribly as a prisoner of war. He was shot down over Vietnam, over North Vietnam. But he wasn't dropping flowers on people. He wasn't dropping care packages on the people of Vietnam. He was killing them. He was slaughtering civilians as well as others. So he's a hero. This is a bipartisan consensus in U.S. politics that John McCain was some great guy. Hey, that was Vietnam. We've had in our own century now a similar glorification of those for whom and for ourselves, we, as Merton put it, we think ourselves better. And that's a a conceit, a moral narcissism that is just out of touch with human reality. Yeah, I was going to say it's sort of that old style of, you know, fervent nationalism and what I would call even like a false type of patriotism uh, where, you know, you, you wrap aggression, war, violence into a flag. And that's one way uh, you, you sort of can prep the public to accept the warfare state. Absolutely. And we are so accustomed to it. And I think that's part of our challenge is to step back from the day to day to not only look at history, but see history unfolding in front of us right now. And we're encouraged to, so to speak, consume history like Wonder Bread, take it off the shelf. It's prepackaged. We're consumers. Well, if we just consume history, given the trajectory of militarism, the nuclear arms race, history will destroy us, destroy the next generations and perhaps all of humanity. This is another form of invisibility. And originally, after, as you mentioned, I had the book War Made Easy come out, and then years went by, and I gradually began to think about a follow-up book. I thought I would call the new book More War Made Easy. But gradually, really mulling it over, I realized that while war remains a constant in this century, courtesy of U.S. taxpayers, there has been an evolution in a lot of the dynamics and the visibility for Americans, while never nearly adequate, has really dissipated. And so that's where I came up with more War Made Invisible, because I think more and more as it blends into the day-to-day -day routine, as we hear it as kind of white noise or don't hear it as white noise, this is what uh, Martin Luther King Jr. called the madness of militarism. It's a kind of unhinged baseline of consciousness or unconsciousness. And we should do better. We should do much better as human beings. One thing I wanted to talk about, and this will sort of get us into a conversation of the media's role in uh, making war easy and making war invisible, as you put it, but 
you know, I was reading through the opening chapters of your book, and I'm one of these people that maybe romanticized the era of Vietnam and, you know, media figures and journalists like pushing back on the war. But you sort of point out, you know, it's kind of a myth with regards to the televised coverage of bloodshed in Vietnam. It wasn't as pivotal in turning the public against the war. So could you talk a little bit about that, the way the media covered Vietnam? And then maybe we could get into how the media has covered war since then. Yeah, that's a key point. Thanks for that. Uh, this came up very recently for me. I was uh, doing a book club Zoom event. And when I raised this point about, as you put it, the mythology of the vigorous TV coverage of the Vietnam War and its carnage, uh, one of the participants quite understandably said, well, but I was really affected by what I saw on TV during the Vietnam War. It really turned me against. And I think that certainly happened uh, for some people. But when you actually look at the information, the data, the broadcast footage frozen in amber, not just memory or anecdotes or individual experiences, but the actual content of what we were getting year after year during the Vietnam War, we ought to keep in mind, no cable TV, certainly no internet, not a lot of even so-called public broadcasting. Well, you just had what? ABC, CBS, and NBC, essentially. That was it. We had three TV networks with news that were national. And uh, they were pretty circumscribed in their coverage. And so when Daniel Hallin, a professor who wrote the book, The Uncensored War, uncensored in quotes, he went back and looked at what they call the kinescopes, the actual stuff that we saw, and he found that very little of that was showing the carnage, even showing battles, showing much less people suffering from the war in Vietnam. And people will remember, and this is in the film, the documentary, War Made Easy, based on my book, we show some of those exceptional events, like Morley Safer at CBS, who showed soldiers burning down a Vietnamese village with Zippo lighters. People remember that because it was so unusual. And I think it's an important point as well, because the media did not stop the war in Vietnam. People, by organizing against it, were the critical factor. And the news media followed, did not initiate. Yeah, I, I was going to say not just that, but you even quote uh, the at one time president of CBS News, Fred Friendly, saying that the network's policies were designed to shield the audience from the true horror of the war. And I mean, it, it's a very telling quote that stood out to me in the opening chapters, because I'm just looking at that and thinking to myself, well, isn't the job of journalists, isn't the job of the news media to tell us the truth? I mean, maybe I'm too old fashioned, but you know, I, I believe in the idea of the fourth estate. But that quote is very contrary to that idea of a media ecosystem that holds the government accountable and tries to report the reality to the we the people. There's a theory and there's a practice. There's a theory of independent fourth estate journalism. 
it's uh, never so rare as with actual coverage of U.S. wars by U.S. media. That's the toughest. That's where there's the least independence. There are exceptions. But as they say in the book, the essence of propaganda is the repetition. This is a more personal question, but I'm I'm curious, what was your turning point when it came to the Vietnam War? Because you've got to live through and see a lot of things, including, you know, just what happened with Daniel Ellsberg, the release of the Pentagon Papers, uh, then the eventual persecution of Daniel Ellsberg for that. So could you speak a little bit to just what was the turning point for you? There was a turning point around when I was 16 years old. As it happened, I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., so as was the case nationally, but maybe a little bit more because we were around the nation's capital, I read about it, I thought about it, and within the period of, I would say, 1966 to early 1967, I began to read about Ramparts Magazine had pictures of the suffering in Vietnam, a little bit of the history, the way that, uh, as President Eisenhower acknowledged, the Ho Chi Minh would have won a unified Vietnam election after uh, the 1950 Accords, Geneva Accords, were uh, supposed to be implemented. The U.S. didn't want to have a free and fair election in Vietnam because Ho Chi Minh would have won. And so when I saw those facts and I saw information, both visual, not on TV, but visual pictures, information, and essays and so forth, I began to read at the local library, the Progressive Magazine, articles that were not super radical, they just challenged the war. There were early pieces by Senator George McGovern, Senator Frank Church, so by really early 1967, I had in my own mind as basically a 16-year-old uh, decided uh, this war is not is not right after all. There's something wrong with it. And it was a pretty swift transition from there. My first anti-war demonstration, I got on a train to New York City, April 15th, 1967. And... Uh, there were, by many accounts, uh, maybe 150,000, 200,000 people uh, marching uh, through Manhattan to the United Nations. It was so long that uh, I didn't even get to the, I believe it was the UN Plaza, in time to hear Martin Luther King Jr. speak at that point. And I remember hearing on the way back uh, from New York to D.C., people were talking and saying, uh, well, President Johnson will have to listen to us now. We had so many people in the streets. Of course, nothing could have been further than the reality. Lyndon Johnson had no interest in listening to peace advocates. And so, like a lot of people, for lack of a better term, I became radicalized because I realized that people at the top of the U.S. government were willing to be mass killers which is a rather different perception than what I had even a couple of years earlier when I thought then Vice President Hubert Humphrey was a great humanitarian. So that was, uh, for me, the beginning. And of course, 
how Nixon pursued the war was horrific. And from there, I've seen basically every president uh, to some degree actively engaging in crimes against humanity. What's the apparatus that has allowed this, I would call it a permanent warfare state, to sort of fester within our society? Because I know a lot of people will use the term military-industrial complex, but I think it encompasses a lot more than that. You know, I think it encompasses a, a, a sort of media-industrial complex as well. Yeah, you could call it a military-industrial media surveillance complex. Silicon Valley is now, of course, very involved in uh, the multi-billion-dollar uh, online media institutions, as well as contracting with the CIA, with the Pentagon. There is so much money being made to continue the warfare state, to enlarge it. The Ukraine war has been a cash cow for the military contractors of the United States. This is for the institutional, economic, and political structure, part of the core and the essence of what they want. They want power and money, geopolitical positioning, access to raw materials, favorable trade deals. They love having 750 U.S. military bases overseas. And of course, as you're referring to, it's cultural. It's how people have expectations and assumptions, how we see our government and we see our world. I'm glad that you brought up Ukraine because, you know, I think it's horrifying uh, what Putin has done with this invasion on numerous different levels, not the least of which is the slaughter that's been occurring. At the same time, what's concerning to me right now is I think this invasion of Ukraine that Putin pulled off, I think it's caused a lot of people to give a lot of goodwill uh, to the United States again. And I mean, after 20 years of the war on terror, I'm very skeptical that, you know, we won't end up back where we were in 2001, where people got, you know, swept up in the sound of the war drums and hubris took over. And we just saw, you know, a really horrible period with the war on terror. Do you share that concern? Absolutely. I think you said it very well. We're in a mindset, perhaps it's if not a default mindset for human beings, at least a strong tendency. We do have a good guy, bad guy uh, outlook quite often. I was certainly raised on that as many people, literally black hats and white hats, cowboys, the good people, the bad people. You use a gun to kill the bad people. That's how good people prevail quite often. But it's been called Manichaean and even some sort of moderate liberal people got tired of it from President George W. Bush after 9-11, dividing the world strictly into good and evil. Well, there is good and there's evil. It's hard to find unalloyed good, and U.S. government being a case in point, to put it mildly. So I think that it's hard for people even notwithstanding the propaganda, which is fierce, to accept or even consider the idea 
that in the overall conflicts between the United States and Russia, there's not simply a good side and a bad side. And it's really hard to accept, and it is discouraging to think, as I do think is the case, that we have two monstrous sets of leaders. One is in Moscow, the other is in Washington. When it comes to warfare and foreign policy, and yes, there are ways in which the United States uh, functions in a much better way in foreign policy and warfare than Russia, but at the same time, both the President of the United States and the President of Russia have been ready, willing, and able to sacrifice large number of lives for their geopolitical gains. And just why did Biden a year ago fist bump the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia? And why did the U.S. under the last three presidents provide billions of dollars in arms sales for Saudi Arabia to lead a war on Yemen that's caused, according to the U.N., almost 400,000 lives? This is a window into the lack of angelic qualities of the United States, to put it mildly. You know, it's interesting. I remember when the invasion of Ukraine first happened and this war broke out, I was talking to uh, Katrina Vandenhuvel of uh, The Nation magazine, and she said, you know, the, the hawks are loose on all ends now uh, in both the U.S. and in Russia. And really, the biggest winners of this have been, you know, arms manufacturers and war profiteers, both in the U.S. and Russia. You know, so, I mean, could you talk a little bit about the profit motive when it comes to war? There's a, a beautiful poem, which I quote in the book from William Stafford. Every war has two losers. And in some sense, that's true, of course, quite often one side loses a lot more in lives and infrastructure and uh, in the society. But to some degree, what goes around comes around. And in the case of wars, U.S. wars in our lifetimes, Raytheon and Boeing, Northrop Grumman, they've never lost. They always win because they always win what they want most of all, and that is massive profits. If you could, I, I also want to talk a little bit about, since you mentioned Martin Luther King, you know, I think some people forget that King, you know, he was concerned with civil rights, but he viewed it as part of a wider struggle. You know, he really wanted to bring together the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, and you know the the movement for economic justice and bring them together under one sort of umbrella you know three different prongs uh that would take on the establishment uh how important do you think it is to understand that the peace movement is actually part of a bigger movement and a lot of these issues whether it's uh war or uh you know economic injustice or uh you know feminism these are all struggles that are interconnected these are really very concentric concerns because that's the real world. You know, we have a culture and maybe it's necessary to some extent. We 
put things in categories and even silos sometimes. But all this intersects. There's just one society called the United States, and the economic structures have enormous effects, whether it's healthcare or education or housing, elder care, infant care, many other aspects of life, when the resources are depleted and deprived, there are tremendous cascading effects when you have literally millions of young people, mostly men, trained on how to use weaponry to kill people, and then you send them home, what does that do for even a few of them who end up having trouble distinguishing between a battlefield and their own communities and end up using their training to kill? What does it mean, the tremendous amounts of PTSD that used to be called shell shock, that people suffer even if they have no physical wounds? That's just you know a few examples of how absolutely the inseparability of these issues is profound. We have, in many ways, a death culture based on profit. And so just as that's the case with warfare and Pentagon contracting and so forth, what the hell's going on, whether you live in New York, Pittsburgh, San Francisco, or any other city or town in the United States? Where's the health care for everyone? Where is the guarantee of education? Where is the provision of housing? Well, it's not provided for all. It's not considered a human right because it's far more profitable to deny that those are human rights. And like a lot of people, I at times would much rather even not talk about or think about war, let alone write about it. I have uh, come to feel, and I think there are many issues, of course, that people need to focus on, but in terms of my own energies, war is at the core because profiteering by corporations to the tune of billions of dollars is replicated by a desire for global maximization of profits. Uh, Thomas Friedman the so-called liberal but actually pro-war columnist of the New York Times wrote more than 20 years ago, he said, you can't have McDonald's around the world without McDonnell Douglas, referring to a huge military corporation. And so, you know, give him credit for being honest. This is a mechanism and we could call it corporate capitalism run amok, which it is. You know, a tag word is neoliberalism. The problems, of course, transcend systems because uh, China's militaristic, although less dangerous than the U.S. by far. They call themselves communist or quite capitalist. Uh, Russia is opposed to U.S. corporate capitalism, but they have their own uh, predatory economic system going. So ultimately, it's 
sometimes called intersectionality that you're referring to, but whatever we call it, this is all connected. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned Thomas Friedman, because one of the issues I wanted to deal with with you is just sort of um, going over the period immediately after 9-11, because I think, you know, at the beginning, some of us were uh, swept up into a really reactionary mindset, including myself. I was very young at the time. That quickly wore off, though. And, you know, I just became horrified by the massive surveillance state we got due to 9-11, this horrible war on terror, the assault on civil liberties that we saw that came with it. And you have these characters like Tom Friedman running around pushing these ideas like, oh, if we just have a McDonald's uh, everywhere in the world, there will be no war. I mean, that's literally what he was saying. Uh, and what's interesting is I think people now look back on the Iraq war and the war in Afghanistan as you know horrors, as failures. But back then, you know, if you spoke out against those wars when Bush was in office, uh, you know, the media system went after you. I mean, we saw what happened to the Dixie Chicks and other celebrities that, you know, spoke out against the war. I know you did some work with, I believe, Sean Penn. He was attacked very brutally by the media. Could you talk about the sort of pervasive environment of, you know, just fear that existed uh, back in the era of the Bush administration? Because I felt like it was an extremely repressive period. It was. Um, after 9-11, there was a lot of um, a lot of fear, tremendous conformity. Uh, nobody wanted to be called a pro-terrorist, just as during the Vietnam War, nobody wanted to be called pro-communist. And it was stultifying. It was akin to the McCarthy era for quite well, a while. You even had, not to interrupt you, but you even had Bush saying, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. You know, it was that black and white. Absolutely. Manichaean, as the saying goes, willing to divide the country and the world. It's the good people and the bad people. Good people are the ones that obey, that don't ask questions, that accept the militarization and the surveillance as something something positive. And we're in a bit of a period like that around Ukraine. It's very difficult, certainly for elected officials to question the lack of diplomacy. Uh, now diplomacy has become a dirty word on Capitol Hill. If you strongly advocate for diplomacy with Russia to solve this horrible war, then attacks are very likely that you're somehow pro-Putin. Well, that's crazy. So to, to respond to that, I mean, I have very mixed feelings about Ukraine just because, I, I full disclosure, I have... Uh, you know, background in Ukraine. So my 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 uh, paternal grandparent came from there. And, you know, I'm rooting for the Ukrainians, to be honest. Um, at the same time, what bothers me is that, you know, ultimately, even if you believe the Ukrainians should be allowed to keep fighting if that's what they want to do, and, you know, I'm, I'm fine with that way of thinking about it. I, I tend to agree with that. Every war will have to end with diplomatic agreements. And I, I think that's a lot of people don't really consider that. I agree. I mean, I think that is a, a fault line. What is the end game here? Part of the moral stance, we're told, of the U.S. is to just pump billions of dollars of weapons in, keep sending the weapons, and lets you and them fight. 
and I'm at a loss for why that's such a moral position. We'll keep sending sending the ammunition, the cluster bombs, the weaponry, and give moral support so that Russians and Ukrainians can keep killing each other. And stripped down to its essence, that is U.S. policy. And not only as something that is accepted, but glorified that this is what being a great American with great leadership entails. And that is a key point, that diplomacy is really going to be the only way out. There is a mindset and a propaganda line that will talk about appeasement in Munich and say, well, Putin is like Hitler, so you can't negotiate. Just has, I think, no historical basis. Putin is not Hitler. The Russian army is not the Nazi army. The aspirations of Russia are not by any means what the aspirations were of basically world conquest of the, the Axis. But it's a convenient sort of fallback. And I, I do remember that during the Vietnam War, there was a lot of talk about Chamberlain and Munich and appeasement as a way of saying we must keep fighting in Vietnam. I, I know I'm going to have at least a few listeners or at least one listener I, I know who uh, is in contact with me that's going to take issue with that and say, you know, I, I have listeners that will say, you know, they think Putin is the second coming of Hitler. And given that he I mean, the invasion was a huge shock to me, and I do think there needed to be some response to it. So how would you react to people that would take issue with your saying that? Well, I mean, some people could say, and they could have an argument to make, that George W. Bush was another Hitler. I mean, look at what he ordered into Afghanistan. Look at what he ordered into Iraq. Look at the huge numbers of Afghans and Iraqis who were killed, according to the Brown University Cause of War Project, 950,000 directly killed by the U.S. war on terror, indirectly 4.5 million. Does that mean that George W. Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump and Joe Biden are like Hitler? You know, it's it's fascinating that you bring that up because I was reading chapter seven of your book, uh, The Keller of War, and I'm, I'm so glad you gave a, a little shout out at the beginning of that chapter to Hassan El-Tayeb, uh, who I believe I've had on the show before uh, from the Friends Committee on National Legislation. He's done some great work on Yemen, you know, and I think, you know, for the most part, we don't hear people talk about Yemen. We don't hear people talk about Palestine. Uh, you know, we don't hear people talk about the U.S. accepting uh, and recognizing uh, the Moroccan occupation and annexation of, you know, Western Sahara. It's very interesting to me because it seems like the through line with all of that is we ignore wars and aggression against countries with people of a darker skin color. It's hidden in plain sight and really dawned on me gradually working on this book. As you mentioned, I have a chapter called Color of War. I can't think really of any 
substantial number of people killed during the war on terror, as it's called, in the last 22 years, who were not people of color. That's pretty stunning. You look at the huge number of people who've been killed by U.S. firepower since 2001, and they've virtually all been people of color. We know, and contrary and, to popular belief, it includes civilians too. I mean, we've heard the stories of in Afghanistan weddings ending up being bombed. You know, well, the Brown University Kosovo War Project says four hundred thousand, and conservatively speaking, four hundred thousand civilians have died in the post nine eleven U.S. wars. Four hundred thousand directly killed. So, we're in a place where. Not that countries are bombed because people of color live there, but because people of color live there, it's easier for the United States to engage in warfare because of individual and institutional systemic racism in the United States. And people should step back for a moment and ask, well, gee, isn't it widely accepted that we have systemic racism that affects U.S. domestic policy? Of course. After the George Floyd murder and so forth, that's more and more widely acknowledged. Yet somehow we're supposed to believe that systemic racism affects domestic policy, but not foreign policy. With regards to the war on terror, what do you think the overall effect of the war on terror has been in terms of where we're at today? Because I think the war on terror and this is probably in part because I grew up living through it as a as a kid and a teenager. But for me, it casts a very long shadow. And, you know, I think we talked about journalists, uh, you know, not necessarily covering the Vietnam War or uh, networks like CBS, not covering the Vietnam War as hard-hittingly as people may think in the popular imagination. But I, I do think that the war on terror was even worse because – you end up getting this this phenomena of embedded journalists, you know, journalists that are embedded with the military, and they're more or less, as Chris Hedges has put it, drinking from the chalice of empire, and you know, becoming part of it. You know, they they, they become seduced by it because they're embedded into the military. Uh, could you speak a little bit about uh, that and just the overall long shadow that the war on terror has cast on us? Well, the acceptance, the assumption that empire by any other name is appropriate is widespread among U.S. mainstream journalists. And I think that shadow is long. It's 22 years long now. At first, when I was told, we were told through media, 9-11 changed everything, I thought that was silly. And of course, it was an overstatement. But it turned out that 9-11, or more precisely, the response to 9-11 by the U.S. government, it's changed a hell of a lot. Not that we were not militaristic before, we were, the country was, but it's normalized, it's made it nonstop, especially thanks to Obama, it became bipartisan, not just a Republican administration's actions. So, I think that the madness of militarism that Dr. King referred to is even more institutionalized as a result. I also wanted to speak, if we could, about 
the U.S. military presence in Africa and, you know, things like AFRICOM, because it's interesting. I, I think that's another thing that a lot of people just don't even know it exists. Uh, so, and I know you talk about it a little bit in the book. It's not the main focus, but maybe we could speak a little bit about that presence and why people are not aware of it. Nick Turris, who I quote in the book, has done great reporting on Africa. It's just out of sight, out of mind. Uh, a lot of it is special operations. A lot of it's confidential. Uh, AFRICOM is a U.S. government military unit that oversees. They can't even function with a headquarters in Africa. They are still based in Germany, even though they were supposedly going to move to Africa. It's under wraps. It's largely secretive. And yet the U.S. is training the vast majority of militaries on that. It's a, it's a power trip. It's You cut out there for a second. You said the U.S. is training. A majority of the militaries, national militaries on the entire continent of Africa. Before we start closing out, uh, are there any points in the uh, book that we haven't necessarily dealt with that you think are particularly important for my listeners to maybe understand and take in? Well, I would uh, just emphasize that we live under a propaganda system, and the U.S. military has exalted status in U.S. media and politics. And unless we consciously challenge that, the militarism will prevail. I'm curious that you brought that up. How in your life have, has, have you seen this sort of propaganda system, this uh, military media industrial complex evolve? Uh, have you seen any specific ways in which it's gotten more entrenched or worse uh, over the years? Any specific, specific examples you could give of that? I think it's become more uh, pervasive and sophisticated uh, through cable television. I think that's been a major factor. And also, this might be counterintuitive, but programs like All Things Considered and Morning Edition that barely existed 30 or 40 years ago came to the fore to a large extent from the Gulf War in 1991, gained more prominence. And there's more trust in it. A lot of uh, liberal or left people would tend to be more trusting of All Things Considered, Morning Edition, PBS NewsHour. The formats are different. They speak in longer sentences and segments. But the reliance on official sources is very similar. I, I also wanted to ask, why do you think we don't have more skepticism uh, towards the military-industrial complex in this country and the sort of, um, I would say, cheerleading we get for empire? Because, you know, you mentioned the Gulf War. I mean, when I was in school, in journalism class, we had to learn about the Iraqi baby incubator story, which was a, a bald-faced lie, we found out. So we have these incidents of, of just bald-faced lying. And I mean, just the Iraq War alone, I think everyone knows that we were essentially lied into war. So why do people keep coming back to drinking from the Kool-Aid of the war machine? Well, if you're a journalist in mainstream media, being pro-war means never having to say you're sorry. 
And even today, if you're pro-US wars, your objective, according to the de facto pro professional attitudes, and if you're anti-US wars, you're biased and problematic. That is the assumption. I have two more questions, if you'll humor me for a moment here. Uh, I, I was going to ask as well, since we talked about Ukraine, I think on one end, you know, there are people that will only talk about Ukraine. They won't talk about Yemen or Israel or U.S. presence in Africa. And then I, I sometimes find on the other end people who I think almost go too far into this, what, what I would say becomes a, an almost pro-Putin stance. Do you think there is a problem with that? Yeah, I think that is a problem. Uh, us human beings, we seem to be susceptible to wanting to choose up sides. I don't see why we should choose up sides between killers in the Kremlin and killers in the White House. I mean, I just think we need a single standard of human rights. We need a single standard of international law and conduct. We need single standards of what it means to be a humane government, if that's possible, and humane people. Uh, and I just uh, completely reject any idea that what Russia is doing in Ukraine is justified. There are explanations. We can explain why. We can say it's, and it was, in response to uh, the totally wrong expansion of NATO up to Russia's borders. We can explain why Russia did it and that from their vantage point, the reasons, but we should condemn it, absolutely condemn what Russia's been doing in Ukraine for the last more than a year and a half. That does not let Washington off the hook because the hypocrisy in Washington doesn't justify what Russia is doing in Ukraine. And likewise, what Russia is doing in Ukraine doesn't justify the hypocrisy or the deadly militarism that is standard U.S. foreign policy. That was the second question I was going to get into. Was my concern is after this war is all said and done, you know, and I hope Ukraine pulls through because, like I said, I, I have a personal stake in it, and I'm very just. I just find it shocking and, and upsetting that Putin would do this. And, and I've seen the loss of life and, and know people in Ukraine who are very much suffering. What concerns me is what comes after, because I think there's this renewed fervor around U.S. militarism because of this. And I think we're just going to go on more military adventures and be doing, in a way, this. I think we could end up doing the same thing Putin did uh, to Ukraine as we did in Iraq. So the last question I wanted to ask you is, where do you think we're headed in the future? What are your concerns? And then what are your hopes? Well, my concerns are very much similar to what you outlined, a spiral of militarism. Uh, one side's, in terms of Russia or the US, one side's uh, horrible actions being used by the other side to justify. Uh, the United States led the way for illegal and moral invasions in the 21st century. And uh, the Kremlin is, is doing it as well now. And we really, to protect human life, 
to reduce the escalating risks of nuclear war as a result of these confrontations between the two nuclear superpowers, I really come back to what the anti-fascist Antonio Gramsci wrote. Imprisoned under Mussolini, he said, we need pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. And we have good reason for pessimism, given for all the reasons that you and I have been discussing for the last hour. We also need that optimism of the will, the determination, because as bad as things are, they'd be worse if people hadn't been organizing for a humane future. And we need that as sort of a guiding light, if you will. We've got to keep the vision not only as a hope, but as a goal that we can turn around this militarism and create a future for the world worth living. Well, not not just that. I was just going to add briefly here, but also just the risks we're facing uh, when it comes to war. I mean, at some point, I honestly believe that if war isn't made obsolete by humankind, it's probably going to be the thing that kills us. You know, I know people have seen that movie Oppenheimer that just came out, and I, I think it has some people thinking about the fact that, you know, nuclear war, nuclear winter could be the end of us. And I just want to end with, uh, you know, talking about Daniel Ellsberg here for a second. Uh, you know, his book, I believe it was called um, the, the Doomsday Machine or the Doomsday Project. Doomsday Machine, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, people forget, they know him for the Pentagon Papers, but he's written a lot uh, in his lifetime. He's passed now, but he wrote a great deal about the risk of nuclear war. And that's my biggest fear, is the possibility of nuclear annihilation. This is where a lot of the enthusiasts for just continuing the war in Iraq without, or the war in Afghanistan, I should say, without negotiations failure to look at what is the end game here. The logical risk increases for nuclear conflagration. And I want to mention, this is a good place to close because action is so crucial. Everybody is invited to go to the website Defuse Nuclear War. That's defusenuclearwar.org. And at the very end of September here in 2023, there are going to be dozens of actions around the country to roll back, do what we can to reduce the risks of nuclear war. And you can get on an alert list. You can really be part of this, what is now fairly widespread, many dozens of actions uh, in late September here. So I do want to invite people, that's defusenuclearwar.org, and we can make a difference. Well, Norman Solomon, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views, uh, and I hope people will check out War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. Anything you want to say in closing, and how can my listeners get a hold of uh, the book, and how can they follow your work uh, going into the future? Well, thanks very much. Uh, War Made Invisible is available through all the online booksellers and so forth. And I also want to invite people, if you do read it, and perhaps you can, if you don't buy it, you can get it from your local public library. And if it's not there, encourage them to order it. 
there are a couple of important venues where you could write your own little review of it. You could, if you're inclined, go to Amazon and write a review on the War Made Invisible page. And or uh, there is uh, Goodreads, which is a, a very large uh, online community of, of readers. And uh, War Made Invisible has its Goodreads page. And your thoughts about the book would be very appreciated and helps other people uh, gain from your own insights. Support independent media would be my other message, because uh, as this uh, podcast is a case in point, we need independent media outlets to push back against the mainstream propaganda. Thank you again, Norman Solomon, for coming on Parallax Views. Thanks a lot. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Norman Solomon. And you'll consider checking out his book, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Toll of Its Military Machine. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.